Welcome back to the Tasty Morsels of Critical Care podcast. So following a hot on the heels of Tasty Morsel number 72 on cardiorenal syndrome is its partner in nephron injury, hepatorenal syndrome. This gets covered in a subsection of O's Manual chapter 44 on liver issues, but there are a variety of other sources mentioned at the end that are well worth a read. It can be a little tricky to pin down this diagnosis. A lot of this comes because it's a syndrome, i.e. a collection of clinical findings that someone has put into a big bucket and mixed around without paying too much attention to hardcore diagnostic information like histology or a true pathological diagnosis. But to start with, we need a little bit of context. So if you find yourself here, we should have an AKI in the setting of advanced chronic liver disease and portal hypertension. So in other words, you've got a cirrhotic. But of course, there are multiple reasons for AKI in this context, so we have to work through them a little before the label of hepatorenal can be safely attached. Our friends in the International Club of Ascites, and yes, that's a thing, I didn't make it up, um, the International Club of Ascites suggests that you need an AKI with a failure to respond to simple things like withdrawal of nephrotoxic agents, treatment of infection, and importantly, a decent trial of albumin. You also have to exclude intrinsic renal de- intrinsic renal diseases, things that lose protein and blood, but this is usually fairly straightforward to exclude with a urine dipstick. However, you can quickly see that a lot of this is pretty nebulous and can be hard to really draw a line on there, and as such, it's fair to say that your patient may have several causes for their AKI and cirrhosis, and hepatorenal syndrome may only be part of the problem. To take hepatorenal per se, what's the purported pathogenesis? Well, we think that increasing portal venous pressures and cirrhosis leads to splanchnic vascular vasodilation. The vessels in our gut lose tone and we develop the chronic high output low systemic vascular resistance state. This state of reduced um, resistance leads to activation of the RAS, the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, causing increased resistance in the renal arteries, and this is obviously in distinction to the very low resistance state of the splanchnic vasculature. As such, perfusion pressure to glomerulus falls and GFR falls. This is reflected in oliguria and the usual renal response to a crisis where it hangs on to sodium for all it's worth. So if you go looking for it, you may well find a urine sodium less than 10. In the background, you've got all this chronic ascites that is adding to the compartment pressure in the abdomen, making things worse. And that's the basic bedtime story version of the pathophysiology that I received. I do understand there's a competing theory where the chronic bacterial translocation of a leaky liver leads to a chronic inflammatory process that buggers the kidneys, but I digress. At this stage, it's worth noting that just like our cardiorenal syndrome, we can split hepatorenal into a couple of types. This is all about timing of onset. So the hospital inpatient with a rapidly rising creatinine um, is more likely to have a type 1 or acute hepatorenal syndrome, while the stable outpatient cirrhotic with a gradually rising creatinine is going to have a type 2 or a chronic HRS. HRS itself can be precipitated by the usual chronic liver decompensations, i.e. bleeding, infection, SBP, uh, also things like large volume paracentesis without appropriate albumin replacement. So how should we treat this syndrome? Well, first off, an important reminder that cirrhosis is not a reversible pathology. And if you're decompensating, then the only real treatment to turn the whole thing around is going to be a liver transplant. All the rest of it is a little bit like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Now, I don't mean to imply that the deck chairs should not be rearranged, and rearranging said deck chairs may well lead to some meaningful short-term outcomes and quality of life improvements, but the hole in the hull from the iceberg isn't going to get any better without the transplant. 
as mentioned in the diagnostic bit, they should have got some albumin. Um, I don't deny that albumin probably has a limited role in the intensive care unit in general. Gone are the days where we could make bold assertions about things like colored osmotic pressures and how albumin was better than crystalloid. We have studied that and it turns out it doesn't seem to be any better than the salty water we already use. But I still think that in the livers it still has an important role and HRS is probably one of those very scenarios where it's very important. The data for its use in HRS is not exactly stellar and it's nowhere near as good as it is, say, for albumin in ascites drainage in SBP, where it does seem to have a mortality benefit. Um, I confess I've done the sneaky let's push the map up past 75 millimeters of mercury move. I've done that for a few days to see if that makes a difference, but I can't say I'm standing on solid evidentiary ground when I do it. But it does get a mention in the relevant up-to-date article. Of course, given that we have access to terlipressin in Ireland and the UK, these types of hemodynamic manipulations to try and improve renal perfusion could even be done on the ward before rushing to commit yourself to continuous renal replacement therapy and an ICU admission. TIPS has been described to be helpful in improving renal function HRS, but only on a very limited basis. So probably worth a discussion with your local liver experts, but not something you can use evidence to make a compelling argument for. So if your if your HRS fails to respond to such therapies, then the option of continuous renal replacement therapy is usually raised. This will indeed replace the failing kidney um, or kidneys, but like many things in intensive care, there's not much point in starting it if there's no chance of reversibility. Some hepatorenal syndrome may be in the context of something like acute alcoholic hepatitis, where the chance of recovery of some hepatic function is reasonable and hence the trial of the CRRT while the liver settles down is very reasonable. In addition, if the patient is already on a transplant list for a liver, then keeping them going with CRRT pending the transplant would also seem very reasonable. However, the more common scenario is the burnt-out cirrhotic who's having increasing frequency of hospital emissions and decompensations, and the prognosis here is dismal, and adding more machines at the end of life is usually not going to help. The tricky bit for us is, of course, teasing out so much of what we discussed above. Um, So, for example, is this kidney injury actually one of the many other eminently reversible causes of AKI in the context of cirrhosis, or is this a true hepatorenal syndrome all driven by chronic progressive liver failure? This, as you've probably discovered by now, is a core part of intensive care medicine and is much better learnt on the intensive care unit and the wards rather than here on the podcast. So for some further reading, um, the International Club of Societies guidelines are linked in the show notes, as is some lovely articles from Derange Physiology, Life in the Fast Lane, um, and of course, O's Manual, Chapter 44. Thanks very much for listening. 